Israel <laughs> is really, in, it's the Donald Trump of nations. So Israel's discovered it could do what it wants and the unconditional support from governments will continue. So why disguise it? The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Today we'll be talking about the Electronic Intifada's top stories of 2022. And we're delighted to be joined again by Executive Director Ali Abu Nima, not only to take a look back at the past year in Palestine and Palestine-related news, but also to discuss the state of journalism, Western complicity in Israel's apartheid regime, and how activism in support of Palestinian rights continue to shape the narrative. Ali, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. It's always uh... My my top goal is to be invited on the Electronic Intifada <laughs> podcast to make the cut. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you came in just under the wire. Um, let's start by talking about the unmitigated violence that Israel has inflicted on Palestinians over the last 12 months. Uh, around 200 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces and settlers so far this year or have died from injuries sustained in previous years. And just some statistics from our recent reporting, uh, at least 34 Palestinian children have been killed by Israeli forces or settlers in the West Bank so far this year. Additionally, 17 Palestinian children were killed during Israel's three-day offensive in the Gaza Strip in August. At least nine of them were killed in Israeli strikes and others were killed by rockets fired by armed groups in Gaza or in ambiguous circumstances. We also saw the execution of Palestinian journalists, most uh, notoriously the murder of Palestinian-American Al Jazeera reporter Shireen Abu Akleh in May. And the U.S. State Department continues to dismiss and ignore forensic evidence that an, that an Israeli sniper intentionally murdered her. Ali, we saw the killing or injuring of Palestinians nearly every day this year, including during the August attacks on Gaza and the political fueling of this violence by Israel's fascist government officials. Can you talk about Israel's sweeping policies of violence in 2022 and what stands out to you when we look back over this year? It seems like it's almost a daily ritual to wake up and see the names and faces of the Palestinians who've been killed overnight, uh, as it is overnight for us sitting, uh, you know, as I am in the U.S., um, in, in towns, villages, refugee camps, cities across uh, Palestine. And this year, already, the year's not over, uh, but Israel killed more Palestinians in the West Bank this year, since at least 2005, that's when uh, OCHA, the UN agency, uh, UN humanitarian agency, started keeping these statistics. Uh, and that includes more than 50 children, as you uh, noted, uh, Nora. This violence is escalating uh, because it's a direct consequence of Israel's continued theft and expansion on Palestinian land. Settler colonialism is an inherently violent process. And 
so there's no such thing as Israeli settlements, Israeli colonization, uh, Israeli dominance of the Palestinians without this brutal violence. And at the same time that the violence has been escalating, it seems that uh, Western governments and uh, Arab governments, who are generally client regimes of the world, are also escalating their rewards for Israel. So there is no, there are individual Israelis who perpetrate these uh, killings, uh, or for the Israeli state and its leaders, they can carry on with killing as usual. Um, you know, there's been a lot of focus over the last uh, month or so about the new Israeli government um, uh, officials. Um, and, you know, a lot of hand wringing, oh, this is the, you know, the most extreme government, um, you know, we've ever seen. But but as as you've been saying, you know, this is just a continuation. I think uh, last year you said something like it's a, a, a you know, is different executioner, but the same acts. Um, can you talk a little bit about the significance of the, the you know, of Itamar Ben-Gavir um, and the formation of this new uh, Israeli government? Right. As we're speaking, Nora, Benjamin Netanyahu is putting the finishing touches, so to speak, to his new coalition. And as I think viewers and listeners will know, it's going to include uh Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich, the two leaders of this party called uh, Jewish Power or Jewish Strength, depending on, on how you uh, translate it. And who are these people? Well, Itamar Ben-Gvir is uh, notorious as an inciter uh, of violence against Palestinians. He's a settler. He's often in Hebron, where some of the most violent and extreme uh, settlers are. And I think for me, the most uh, indelible image of Itamar Ben-Gvir is from when he was uh, younger. There's Israeli television footage of him uh, in 1994 or 1995, excuse me, dressed up for Purim as Baruch Goldstein. Who is Baruch Goldstein? He is the American uh, Jewish settler from Brooklyn who, uh, on February 25th of 1994, on the third Friday of Ramadan, went into the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron and uh, machine gunned to death the 29 Palestinian men and boys as they were praying. And a year later on Purim, uh, Baruch Goldstein dressed up, uh, excuse me, Itamar Ben-Gvir, dressed up as Baruch Goldstein, this mass killer, and said on Israeli national television, he's my hero. Now, if you think that was just some kind of youthful uh, foolishness on behalf of uh, Ben Kvir, that's not at all the case. As recently as 2019, he bragged about keeping a uh, portrait of uh, Baruch Goldstein, the mass murderer, on his living room wall, and he continues to incite, uh, directly incite violence against Palestinians. As recently as October, he showed up in occupied East Jerusalem as settlers were attacking Palestinians. And Palestinians in their neighborhoods and refugee camps were, you know, exercising their right to protest, to fight back. Um, ben Kvir showed up uh, 
brandishing a pistol and urging settlers if Palestinians uh, throw stones, shoot them. Just, you know, shoot them in the street like, you know, the same tactics of British colonialists in South Africa or India or French colonialists in, in Algeria, but this is 2022. And Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, who is no different, I mean, these are cut from the same cloth, uh, are uh, slated for top uh, so-called national security posts in Netanyahu's government. So, of course, this is causing a lot of hand-wringing, uh, particularly among sort of liberal Zionist uh, Israel lobby groups in Britain and in the United States and other countries, because, you know, they're saying, oh, Ben-Gvir is a step too far. Israel's uh, lovely, precious democracy is being threatened by, uh, uh, you know, ogres uh, like Ben-Gvir and Smartridge. But the reality is, the violence and the hatred and the incitement of Ben Gvir and Smartrich has always been Israeli government policy and practice. I mean, the people who carried out the massacres in Deir Yassin and Tantura in 1948 were not any different from uh, Ben Gvir and uh, uh, Smartrich. The difference now is that Israel has discovered that uh, it will enjoy unconditional support no matter what it does. It's I'm kind of reminded of when Donald Trump famously said, you know, I could shoot someone de dead in the middle of Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't affect my popularity. And he was right for at least a very long time. And Israel <laughs> is really, in, it's the Donald Trump of nations in that sense. Israel can do whatever it wants to Palestinians. And U.S. politicians, particularly top Democrats, of course, Republicans, but top Democrats uh, and British politicians, whether it's Keir Starmer, uh, who leads the Labour Party, I'm sure we'll talk about that, European Union leaders, whoever it is, the leaders of the United Arab Emirates, uh, Ben Gvir was uh, warmly welcomed at the um, United Arab Emirates, Emirates Embassy in Tel Aviv recently. There are photos of the ambassador there. Uh, warmly greeting him. So Israel's discovered it could do what it wants, and the unconditional support from governments will continue. So why disguise it? Why not put somebody who, who has a uh, loving portrait of Baruch Goldstein on his li living room wall in charge of national security? From Israel's perspective, there's no downside. Right, right, right. Um Let's uh, rewind a little bit more and talk about the three days uh, in August when Israel uh, attacked Gaza. Um, you know, this comes on the heels of May of 2021, um, uh, when when Israel launched uh, its previous attack on Gaza. Can you talk a little bit about what happened um, this past August and the significance of um, how it ended uh, so quickly. What happened was that the so-called centrist, moderate uh, government of uh, Yair Lapid, uh, the outgoing government, uh, 
launched a surprise attack on Gaza to assassinate a senior official of Islamic Jihad, one of the Palestinian resistance, group, resistance groups in his home, shattering the uh, ceasefire that had prevailed since May of 2021, Israel's last spasm of, you know, its last brutal orgy of violence in Gaza. This violence is, of course, ongoing. We're talking about the sort of the big conflagrations that uh, start to draw attention from the rest of the world. And, you know, it's such a typical pattern. Israel always breaks these ceasefires. And then when Palestinians respond in any way, that then becomes the justification uh, by Israel's supporters for Israel to attack Palestinians back. I think it ended quick. It, it it was three days of horror in Gaza. You know, not to, not to underestimate it, and uh, dozens of people were killed, as you noted, seventeen children, uh, Nora. Uh, but the Palestinian groups weren't looking for that fight with Israel. They didn't start it, and they weren't trying to escalate it. Uh, at the time, Israel attacked uh, an Islamic Jihad leader, and in coordination with the other resistance groups, Islamic Jihad launched uh, rocket fire towards Israel in response to the Israeli attack. But there was a joint decision by the resistance groups, they have what they call the Joint Operation Room, not for, for the other major groups, particularly Hamas, the largest uh, resistance faction, not to enter the fight. In other words, they were not seeking escalation. The message they were sending is, we're ready to escalate if we have to, because we will defend Palestinians in Gaza, but we're not looking for it. And so I think it was the uh, cooler heads of the Palestinian resistance leaders uh, that managed to stop this uh, uh, orgy of Israeli violence from becoming even worse as it was in May 2021 or 2014 or 2008 or so many of the countless times Israel has done this. But I think what it was, you know, the Israelis have this term called mowing the lawn, which is just a, a psychopathic term. You can imagine the grass gets too long, so you take out the lawnmower and and cut the grass every week or two weeks or whatever it is. What they mean by mowing the lawn is that if Palestinians in Gaza get the idea that they can resist or stand up to Israel, then you have to go in and do a massacre in order to keep them down again. That's what Israel means by mowing the lawn. So every now and then Israel wants to do these mowing the lawn massacres in Gaza just to make sure that that message from their perspective gets through yeah it's um uh yeah it's a depressingly frequent story you know yeah israeli attacks on gaza that we have to continue to return to time and time and again and um you know every time it happens i feel like in the west in Britain, and I don't know if this is your experience in the US, but I feel like activists, usually the younger generation of activists, we all have this 
kind of moment where we think, oh, it's so clear now. Surely things are going to change. There's going to be, you know, a sort of sea change. And um, it never quite happens. Although, you know, I think things have changed over time. And, um, you know, you were talking earlier about uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir and the whole new government coming in now in, in inside Israel. And um, I find it really interesting because for me, I, I do think it's an interesting moment because for many years, I mean, for decades, really, um, it was always put out by liberal Zionist propagandists, really, the, this idea that, um, you know, oh, these are the extremists, the Kahanists, you know, the followers of, of Rabbi Maya Kahana, as um, Ben-Gvir and Smotrich are, um, who was this really kind of psychopathic um, settler, Jewish-American settler from Brooklyn, who was a real um, extremist. And I think that um, it, it, he, the, the kind of liberal Zionist propaganda that was put out to me was um, one of the things about it was there would be from time to time, Israel would ban one of, one of the right. Arab Palestinian Arab parties inside the Knesset. You know, there were several um, part of, there's been attempts to ban them. I think that at one point there was a Palestinian Arab party that was banned. Um, and then they would sort of um, cover that by saying, oh, well, we're going to ban like the Kach party, which was one of the Kahanist parties was banned at the same time as one of them. And so they were trying to say, oh, look, there's, there's extremists on both sides and we're sort of right. banning them. But now, you know, they're not only in Tennessee, but they're leading the government. They have these leading positions in the government. Um, and, you know, I, it's, uh, it's interesting because, like, like you said, they're no different in many ways from the people who carried out the, you know, the Day Yassin massacre and the Tantura massacre. You know, it, it, if, you, if you look in the history, Day Yassin massacre, yes, it was carried out by the Egun and the Lichai, the the revisionist Zionists, the right-wing Zionists who were the forerunners of the Likud party. But it was also supported, like there was, um, it was supported by the so-called, you know, the, 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 the well, I, I guess we could say they were liberal Zionists, they would have called themselves socialists, you know, the 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 Haganah, which was the, the mainstream of the Zionist movement in Palestine at the time, provided um, artillery support for the DSC massacre. Um, and so it's, you know, these kind of political differences within um, Israel are really played up, I think, by by pro-Israel propagandists when in actual fact and in actual reality, they really all work together. You know, the one thing I want to disagree with you on, Asa, not, not disagree, but maybe, maybe develop. Uh, you said that after these... Israeli massacres in Gaza, we think things are, you know, going to change, but then they don't. I think that has to be qualified. There is a sea change. It, it, right. But you have to be specific about what you're talking about. So, yes, the yeah. governments, whether it's the U.S. government or the EU or the Arab regimes, their client regimes who are armed by the U.S. and the EU, they don't change. They continue to, to throw themselves at Israel's feet. But there is a sea change in public opinion. And I think you can see that, for example, in the World Cup. The World Cup is really a showcase of that. 
And I don't know if we can add in that viral clip of the uh, England fans. But the clip is an Israeli uh, TV channel interviewing these four English, I guess you'd call them lads, uh, following. <laughs> I think they're more lads than chaps. Yeah. In case can correct me. Uh, following uh, England beating uh, Senegal. I'm impressed at myself for knowing wow. that it was Senegal. <laughs> And so the Israeli reporter, you know, is just very excited about this. And, oh, you know, is it coming home? In other words, England England bringing the trophy home. And then he says, you know, I guess, roll the clip. But the fact that this, I think it was so unexpected, you know, there has been incredible uh, displays of solidarity from players. You know, the Moroccan team, when they won their famous victory against uh, Spain, brought out the Palestinian flag. And there have been so many examples of that. And there's been no popular pushback to that. On the contrary, people seem to be loving it all over the world. And yeah. to me, that's 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 a symbol. I mean, the world... That has changed. That, that has changed. And Asa, maybe at some point you want to talk about how in the UK you have these Palestine action activists who have been going around literally smashing up Israeli arms factories in the UK. And I don't know now how many have been charged with criminal damage and other crimes. I can't crimes. keep count, honestly. And, and they keep every single time, so far, knock on wood, getting acquitted by yeah. judges, by juries in the UK, who are accepting the argument that, yes, under normal circumstances, going and smashing windows and equipment in you know, a quiet town in in Britain would be a crime, but they're accepting the argument that these acts are justified because they aim to stop a bigger crime, which is Israel's uh, violations of the rights of the Palestinians. So that that's, to me, again, a sign of the sea change. And there's similar things in the US as well that we see going on. So I think... Uh, yeah, I think that is something to, to celebrate. It's, of course, not yet translating into the kind of change we want to see in terms of what governments are doing, but Israel has lost. Israel has completely lost the battle for hearts and minds, and there's no going back on that. Yeah. Let's... Um, let's uh talk about the execution of Shirin Abu Akleh and how that um, reverberated around the world, not just in, you know, Palestine uh, related activism circles or uh, across Palestine itself, but, but really around the world because of the just naked, brutal um, impunity uh, that, that Israel um, has enjoyed uh you know, for the last 75 years, but also um, specifically uh, around Shirin's uh, assassination. Can you talk a little bit about, I just, you know, when, when, when it was talked about, um, you know, in the mainstream press, in, in Western media, um, 
what was still left out of the discussion was what the Israeli army was doing in Jenin in the first place. That was never interrogated. It was never debated or analyzed or given any context whatsoever. It was just like a natural thing that the Israeli occupation army was in Jenin at the time. Um, Ali, can you talk a little bit about uh, Shirin Abu Akleh and and uh, you know the 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 ongoing fight to to you know to bring justice for her for her family um, and for you know countless other Palestinian journalists. Yeah, I think uh, you know that that morning I, I was actually in 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 Amman in Jordan on the morning of May eleventh when Shirin Abu Akleh was killed and. Had I been in the U.S., I would have been asleep. But I was up early, and this was all unfolding basically live on social media. And later, uh, you know, at the beginning, some of the clips were circulating, just the utter horror, because people knew Shirin Abu Akleh. She'd been a fixture on Al Jazeera screens for 25 years. She was... 50, 51 years old. And she, so for half her life, she had been in that role and she was just trusted and loved by Palestinians and a fixture. And one of the real universally known and respected figures. She was a great journalist and she was someone who, you know, people would say she was very courageous. In hindsight, but you just took it for granted that Shireen was always going to be there and doing her job. And that's what she was doing that morning in Janine when she was gunned down in cold blood, executed, live on television, uh, as she was wearing a helmet and a vest, clearly marked uh, press. And it was clearly uh, a marksman who was able to shoot her in the head despite her protective gear. And what what can you say? I think the message that was sent, whether intentionally or not by Israel, and, and I think there's reasonable grounds to believe intentionally, is that, look, even Shirin Abu Akleh is not safe. We can do what we want to her. So don't think any of you are safe. And not and watch us do this with complete impunity. And that's what has happened up to this point. Because, of course, the Israeli spin machine immediately went into gear. Naftali Bennett, the prime minister uh, at the time, immediately put out videos on Twitter, just outright lying, fake videos claiming that Palestinian gunmen had killed Shirina Barclay. What I think, if there's any sort of comfort in what, what happened, was how quickly Israel lies unraveled. And journalist after journalist and human rights group after human rights group quickly went in and they were able to debunk the Israeli government's lies. But Selem, uh, the Israeli human rights group, did... Uh, an uh, incredible thread on Twitter immediately showing how the videos that Bennett had posted could not have 
those could not have been the people who killed Shirin Abu Akleh. Then you had Al-Haq, which did a field investigation immediately afterwards. Uh, and then you had, I think it's now n- nine independent investigations. And that included investigations from human rights groups, but also CNN, the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, and others that all reached the same conclusion. It couldn't have been done by Palestinians. It almost certainly was done by Israel. And that changed the narrative. It forced Israel, first of all, it forced the Biden administration to admit, yeah, Israel probably did it. But, you know, we don't think they did it deliberately. I mean, the U.S., of course, tried to help Israel cover it up, but they weren't able to. And Israel wasn't able to. They eventually had to come out in September and admit, yeah, we we did it, but it wasn't a, a criminal, you know, it wasn't a criminal act. Uh, Lina uh, Abu Akleh, uh, uh, Shirin Abu Akleh's niece and the rest of the family have waged a determined campaign in the name of Shirin and in the name of all Palestinians who are subjected to this horror insisting that there be accountability and justice and demanding that the U.S. launch its own uh, investigation into the killing and that there be criminal accountability. And just as of the last few days, Al Jazeera, with the support of the family, actually filed uh, a criminal complaint at the International Criminal Court. We'll have to see if that goes anywhere, given the court's constant foot dragging on the question of Palestine. But um, the, also I want to mention in this context that the year started, 2022, started with the murder of another Palestinian American, because, of course, everyone knows, I think, at this point, that Shirin Abakla is Palestinian American, which is, is why there is this particular demand on the United States government to insist on accountability. But the, at the beginning of the year, on January 12th, uh, Omar Assad, a Palestinian-American uh, great-grandfather, uh, the father, father of seven and grandfather of 17, I think it was, and uh, great-grandfather of three, 78 years old, had retired from 40 years of you know running small grocery stores in and around Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the Chicago area. After 40 years, he moved back to his village of Jaljilia. He and his wife, uh, Nazmiya, built a house in order to enjoy their retirement years around friends and family. And on that night of January 12th, he was on his way home from driving home across his village Uh, from a relative's house where they'd been playing cards and drinking tea and watching TV, just having a good time. And he was stopped by Israeli soldiers, forced out of the car, shackled, blindfolded, frog-marched to uh, a construction site where other Palestinians were being blindfolded and detained, horribly abused, and then just left dead in the street. And the autopsy found that it was the shock and the stress. He'd had quadruple bypass surgery a few years earlier. This was a an elderly man, not in good health, who had not done anything to anyone. And he was just brutalized and left dead 
And the U.S. government, his family, uh, I wrote about this, uh, his, his family have also demanded that the U.S. Justice Department investigate, and they have done nothing. They haven't even answered the requests. But recently, we've seen some action from the U.S. government uh, where the, the specific unit who whose soldiers killed uh, Omar Ashad is now being sort of tentatively investigated by the U.S. government under this, the so-called Leahy Law. It's far from enough. It's far from adequate. Uh, but to the extent that the U.S. is being forced to pay attention to these horrible crimes, it's because of the pressure from the families. It's because of the pressure from activists. It's because of the pressure from members of Congress, including 24 senators who wrote demanding a U.S. investigation uh, and accountability for Shirin Abu Akhla's killing. And, and similarly, lawmakers have uh, made demands related to Omar Assad. And that in turn is because of, of the grassroots pressure. Those, those senators aren't just waking up one morning and saying, I, I want to do this. So again, those are the signs. Those are the things we can celebrate. No, it's not enough. No, there hasn't been justice for Shireen or for Omar uh, Ashad. But justice comes from the grassroots. It doesn't come from people sitting in offices on high, uh, meeting it out. And so that, but of course, just to wrap up this thought, we're talking about two Palestinians here who are you who happen to be U.S. citizens, and so there is slightly more attention. But remember, the vast majority, in fact, all Palestinians killed this year and and any other year. This is done with impunity. There are no investigations. There are no. There's no justice. There's no. Where is the international criminal court? Why has it been sitting on the the Palestine situation? Situation, even though they opened uh, a formal investigation, Karim Khan, the chief prosecutor, has done absolutely nothing. He hasn't even mentioned Palestine until the last couple of days. For the first time, he mentioned Palestine and said he hopes to visit in 2023. Absolutely pathetic. Yeah, I think um, one of the defining images of the year from Palestine for me was, you know, that video footage of um, Shirin Abu Akhla's funeral being attacked by mm. Israeli troops. I mean, it just said so much, you know, even in death. Israeli occupation soldiers just won't leave Palestinians alone, you know, that um, there was this, you know, for all the tears and, and for the tragedy of of uh, Shireen's death, um, in a way, there was a beauty in the moment of Palestinians coming together to celebrate her life, you know. And, you know, it, Shireen was uh, of Christian background as well, so she was coming from a church and Palestinian Christians and Muslims all together celebrating her life. Um, and But even that moment was brutally attacked by these Israeli occupation thugs. And it was, um, to me, it just said so much. And it just showed uh, for a global audience, really, Israel's crimes for, for so many people. Yeah. Um, 
It, re it really did. And, you know, those images were so shocking to people. I mean, people looked at that around the world and said, you killed her. Why do you need to attack her funeral? And that that sort of heart-stopping moment where it looked like her coffin was about to fall from the shoulders of the, the pallbearers as they were being brutally beaten and clubbed by these Israeli thugs in uniforms and and they they managed i don't know how they managed to keep her up yeah keep the keep the coffin up and prevent just what have would have been just an utter horrifying already on top of a horrifying yeah. situation an even more horrifying situation but there is a logic to why israel attacked the funeral people because of course afterwards when these images went around the world israel tried to spin it and say oh well, yes, we'll look into this and we'll we'll look into why did the officers behave like this? Again, trying to pass the buck down the chain of command as right. if this was just a local uh, misbehavior by the officers in the street. It wasn't. There were orders from the top to prevent the funeral from becoming a mass gathering of Palestinians in Jerusalem. Israel had tried to impose conditions on the family that because people wanted to carry Shireen's casket on their shoulders through the streets of Jerusalem. And Israel tried to insist it has to be transferred by a car in order to prevent this from becoming a massive march. And all over Jerusalem, they were uh, beating Palestinians, grabbing flags, trying to prevent Palestinians from holding or, or, or uh, showing Palestinian flags. And it failed. When you saw the aerial images of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in the streets of Jerusalem, and Israel tried and failed to stop that, it was also a sign of how tenuous Israel's grip on Jerusalem is. Because remember, Israel's propaganda is this is our city, it's our capital, no one can challenge us, we control it, we're the legitimate authority, and the Palestinians have to do what we say. And in death, Shireen showed that, no, the people of Jerusalem, the Palestinian people of Jerusalem, are in control of the city. And Israel really has a very tenuous grip on it. That, I think, too, is uh, was a very revealing moment. Well, we're going to continue this conversation with Ali Abonima in a second part to this video, so please stay tuned. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.